On a Friday morning in September 2019, thousands of people took to the streets of Toronto, joining millions of others around the world for a youth-led global climate strike. Some staff and aid workers from the Canadian Office of Doctors Without Borders, also known by its French name Messins Sans Frontières or MSF, walked in solidarity with the young protesters. It is uh, without doubt the single most important issue uh, for health and for humanitarianism today and even more so in the coming 10 to 20 years. This demonstration today, and it's happening all over the world, uh, is the beginning of a massive, massive global uh, change and engagement around the climate crisis, and it's about time. That was Canadian Dr James Orbinski, the former international president of MSF, who accepted the Nobel Peace Prize on behalf of the organisation in 1999. MSF is a medical humanitarian organisation. We're not climate scientists or environmental activists. So why are some of our aid workers concerned about climate change? MSF Canada's humanitarian affairs advisor, Carol Devine, explains. MSF is working on the front lines of climate change. So many of us are concerned because it's vulnerable people who stand to become more vulnerable. And it's an emergency. You're listening to Everyday Emergency, a podcast from Doctors Without Borders. My name is Nick Owen. In today's episode of Everyday Emergency, we'll hear from some of our colleagues who are working with vulnerable people who live in areas that have seen changing weather patterns and environmental degradation. They have witnessed firsthand how this has impacted our patients' health, safety and livelihood. Few areas in the world are more prone to extreme weather-related disasters than the Asia-Pacific region. Between 2014 and 2017, countries in the region were affected by more than 200 storms and cyclones and more than 230 cases of severe flooding. MSF has been working in the region since the 1980s and has responded to a range of disasters like Cyclone Nargis in Myanmar or severe floods in Thailand. For Ken Zui, who works in our operations support unit in Hong Kong, MSF's most memorable intervention was the response to super typhoon Haiyan in the Philippines in 2013. Hospitals are destroyed, doctors are gone, uh, medicine is washed away. We arrived here around noon, so within half a day we have seen 80 patients. We've seen a lot of wounds, most of them treated for the very first time. We also saw a lot of uh, pneumonia, um, common cold, diarrhea, diseases most of the time associated to the typhoon. The, the work to be done here is enormous. Just the logistic challenges of moving everything when we have very little heavy machinery. Most of this is being done with local labour and by hand. The way that we wish to work here is to assist the health authorities to get their existing services back up and running as, as, as quickly as possible. It's important that the population can carry on with previous care. People don't stop having babies because there was a typhoon, for example, and there isn't so much access to health care. We're also trying now very hard to go into to more rural areas to, to map what the health needs are. It's a very, very difficult situation for the population and, and MSF is trying its best. I just saw a mother with her very small child and um, she said that um, yeah, um, they, they sort of just survived and I asked her, um, she complained of headache and I said, well, anything else that happened to you? And then she started crying and for me it was a clear signal how, how traumatized they are and if you ask them how are you, then they can release the pain, the mental stress they have. Typhoon Haiyan is one of the strongest super typhoon ever recorded. It caused over 6,300 deaths and displaced 4 million people. 
essential infrastructure, including health structures, roads, ports, airports, were damaged or totally destroyed. And even the uh, emergency stocks that uh, were shipping to prepare for the relief work by the government were swept away, let alone the houses and other buildings. The, the health need is so immense and immediate, and the risk for communicable diseases outbreak were high. When Haiyan happened, MSF was able to act fast. We had already set up an emergency preparedness and response unit in the region and were able to roll out a massive medical response. Our teams also provided shelter, non-food items and water and sanitation services. The logistical challenges for our teams were enormous. Many of the affected communities lived in remote island locations and were cut off because roads had been destroyed and air and seaports were not functioning. As with most disasters, the people who were most affected by Typhoon Haiyan were the poorest communities. But according to my colleague Ken, there are two groups of people who are particularly vulnerable when weather-related disasters strike. The first group is people living in unstable contexts. The town of Marawi, on the island of Mindanao in the southern Philippines, for example, is an area marked by armed insurgencies. Unlike the northern Philippines, however, it's usually not in the path of typhoons. But in 2017, um, so the same year that uh, the fighting broke out, um, a typhoon named Turbine passed through Mindanao two days before Christmas. It caused flooding, landfall, and damaged buildings. So in this region, normally typhoon season ends in November. So which means that this typhoon um, came with an unusual path at unusual times and affecting less prepared populations. So you can imagine how difficult it may be for the, for the people who were already displaced by conflict, living in makeshift uh, shelters, to face such a tropical storm. And for MSF, it's, uh, it's, it's challenge also because the insecure contest hinder our ability to assess the needs of all communities in a timely manner. MSF is also concerned about the impact of weather-related disasters on people living in urban slums. In the past decades, Southeast Asia, like many other regions in the developing world, has undergone a massive urbanisation process for a variety of reasons. Population growth has forced millions to move to a more marginal lands and coastal areas near big cities. And these people, they are more likely living in poor constructed slums, so which makes them more vulnerable to typhoon and storm surges than those in the higher uh, hinterlands. Extreme weather events are not a new phenomenon in Southeast Asia, but according to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, a warmer climate is amplifying existing problems. A report by the Asian Development Bank shows that the frequency of disasters globally has risen markedly in recent decades, particularly storms and floods. The Asia-Pacific region has borne the brunt of this alarming trend. Warmer, wetter weather also provides perfect breeding conditions for mosquitoes, which can spread diseases like malaria and dengue fever. MSF has started monitoring the trends of dengue fever outbreaks in the region. The initial findings are alarming. In the past few months, the number of uh, reported dengue cases in Cambodia, Vietnam, Laos and the Philippines are well above expected levels. So in Philippines, for example, the cases double from last year, the numbers are big. We are talking about 188,000 confirmed cases and 720 deaths of this year alone. The Philippines Department of Health declared a national dengue epidemic in early August. 
And then in Vietnam, a 3.5-fold increase of cases. And in Bangladesh, a 6-fold increase of cases. So the impact of climate change on health is significant, and we definitely see it. Bangladesh is a country where the impact of extreme weather events on people's livelihoods and health is particularly severe. Carol Devine, who we heard from at the beginning of the podcast, recently visited our projects there. I can tell you that our colleagues are concerned about extreme weather events because Bangladesh is a climate hotspot and also climate-sensitive diseases seem to be on the rise. I can tell you every meeting I went to with MSF people and with external partners, government, non-government, people talk about dengue, dengue, dengue. Carol says our colleagues in the country are acutely aware of the impact of climate change. They're so aware because, you know, recently there was a cyclone, uh, because they're seeing, you know, diseases on the rise, and because Bangladesh is a known um, hotspot, the government talks about climate change. The Prime Minister recently in the UN climate meeting said, look, my country is highly impacted. So it's on people's minds because it's everywhere. And I'll tell you, I went to, we went to a meeting, and uh, we got stuck in traffic in Dhaka because of this called um, uh, sudden flooding. And we were ironically late for a climate change meeting because we were in knee-deep water. While vulnerable communities in some areas of the world where we work experience the devastating impact of more frequent storms and heavier rains, others suffer from a lack of water because of droughts. Leo Tremblay is a Canadian meteorologist and water and sanitation specialist, or WATSAN, who worked in the Southern Democratic Republic of Congo. Unlike other parts of the country, which is generally green and lush, the area where he worked was extremely dry. The rainy season there usually lasts for two or three months, but when Leo was in the area, the wet season had been delayed and was much shorter than usual. The impact of this was that the people didn't have as much water in their wells. They usually had to dig deeper, like to get the water. And in some cases, like we were in in some... um, neighborhoods in cities, there was lots of wells, but most of these wells ran dry. And they, they actually had to find the well that was deeper and, and, and dig already deeper because more people had to depend on this well. So it was kind of a, so it was one, one of the impacts that I noticed as a Watson in the field. People had to walk long distances to find other clean sources of water, often kilometers away. Water became scarce and precious, but one of the main issues that Leo observed was the decline in the quality of water that was available and the impact it had on people's health. In some cases, people just don't have other sources. I mean, if, if one source runs dry, they, they have to go to a source that's not re- reliable. In some cases, it's rivers, and we know that rivers are a big carrier of, uh, of waterborne diseases like cholera. So what we saw in some villages that people relied on water from the rivers and and got cholera afterwards. One of the tasks of a water and sanitation specialist is to prevent waterborne diseases. The most important one is cholera, but there's also typhoid fever and hepatitis A. Even malaria can be considered a waterborne disease, as mosquitoes breed in stagnant water. Leo says that a changing climate can influence disease transmission. These diseases are strongly linked to precipitation and temperature variations. Um, And we know that climate change affects disease across the world. So the changes of climate change, that changes that they bring, they they actually change uh, the, the cycles of these diseases around the world. Environmental change and degradation can have a devastating impact on people's health, but it can also be a factor that contributes to conflict and displacement. 
Dr Chibuzu Okonto has worked with MSF as a physician and emergency coordinator in West Africa and other parts of the world. He grew up in the city of Lagos in southern Nigeria. When he was young, he and his family spent their holidays in the Lake Chad region in the north of the country, close to the border with Chad, Cameroon and Niger. Back then, it was uh, a lot of people from the south travelled all the way north because it was a more exotic place, you know, and they had game reserves, so you could go see animals like in Yankari Game Reserve, you know, and there was uh, the lake where you could take the boat and enjoy the, the waters. And also, that part of the country, there was a lot of food. So I remember we bought lots of fish and, you know, also bought lots of uh, vegetables from there. When Chibuzu visited Lake Chad in the 1980s, it was still a vast body of water, one of the biggest lakes in Africa. It was the source of drinking and irrigation water for millions of people. People in the area made a living from fishing, livestock and agriculture. But over the past decades, the lake has shrunk by a staggering 90%. That's according to the United Nations Environmental Programme. The UN organisation says that the disappearance is a result of overuse of the lake's water, extended droughts and the impacts of climate change. Millions of people lost their livelihoods. If that wasn't enough, the region has become an epicentre of violence over the past decade. Armed groups are fighting the Nigerian army, resulting in a massive displacement of people. After several years of violence in northeast Nigeria, the conflict has expanded into Cameroon, Chad and Niger. The violence has uprooted more than two million people from their homes. Chibuzu says there's a connection between a changing environment, insecurity and displacement. Of course, the reason for why people are leaving is multi-factored, but every single person will tell you that security is part of the reason why they will leave. But that insecurity is linked to the fact that majority lost their livelihood of fishing or, you know, what they gained from the lake. You had people who were just making their living from everything linked to the river, so some make nets, some sell fish, some, you know, make baskets. Everyone had a kind of trade. You know, as soon as all that were lost, the insurgencies were able to provide employment and give money, and that's how they became strong and they controlled those regions. Patients are telling our colleagues how a degradation of the environment, combined with insecurity, has amplified their suffering, such as being more vulnerable to sexual violence. For example, the women, you know, their stories is where you get the feeling, because the women, like the ones you see for sexual violence, you know, it's always the same story, you know, they, they used to go one or two kilometres for water, you know, now they need to go further and then coming back at night, so you know it's really linked to the access to these things. More than 10 million people in the Lake Chad Basin heavily depend on humanitarian support for their survival today. But providing aid in the region is very challenging due to security and access issues. Some camps for displaced people in northern Nigeria lack access to basic needs such as food, clean drinking water, shelter and sanitation. During the rainy seasons, there's a rise in malaria and other epidemics such as cholera and hepatitis E. Many displaced people have no access to medical care and are dying of easily treatable diseases such as malnutrition and malaria. As for making a direct link between a changing climate and how it impacts people's health and disease outbreaks in the region, 
Dr Chibuzu Okonta says he and his colleagues are not there yet. But he says we need to start asking more questions. Like in medicine, if you don't ask the question, you don't find the, the answer. So basically, I will not say that we've seen any new disease or any new, uh, you know, something strange that we never saw before. But what we can say is that in Western Africa, you never had, for example, the Ebola virus at the scale that you've seen it. And from what we gathered when we tried to understand more about this, uh, that outbreak in 2014, you know, we realized also that the, the bats and the animals, you know, they, they are forced to migrate, to move from their natural habitat to somewhere else, you know. So why are they moving, you know? Why do they have to leave their forest or wherever they were to, you know, now go closer to where people could be in touch with them? Dr Aconte is not the only one who thinks we should be asking more questions. An example of the multiple factors that cause migration. We know that environmental alterations have always been a driver of displacement. Sudden extreme weather events, such as hurricanes, tend to generate rapid and temporary displacement. Other types of environmental deterioration, such as droughts, lead to slower displacements, often for prolonged periods of time. So, for instance, Hurricane Harvey in the Caribbean, Central and North America in 2017 is an example where people were displaced for often for short periods of time, but definitely where displacement was happening. Cyclone Nargis in Myanmar in 2008, floods in Bangladesh in 2017, and, and in Balochistan in Pakistan in 2010, where MSF worked, MSF worked in all these locations. But the examples that I know more profoundly include forced displacement related to to the combination of violence and prolonged and extreme droughts in Somalia and Eritrea in 2010 to 2012, and also crop failures partly related to to a disease that spread in warming climates in northern Central America, which, as as we know, is a region with widespread humanitarian needs and 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 related to to diverse insecurities, let's say. That was Lynn bjorkland Bellevo, a former humanitarian affairs advisor for MSF, who's currently doing academic research about the connection between climate change and migration. Earlier this year, Lynn visited a migrant shelter in the town of Tenosique in Mexico, close to the border with Guatemala. MSF runs a clinic in the shelter that provides migrants from Central America with physical and mental health care. Most people Lynn talked to told her that they'd left their homes because of violence, only to encounter yet more violence along migration routes in Mexico. It appeared as if everyone had a story that's somewhat related to to violence. And while some were mentioning um, armed gangs, others were saying that they had been confronted by by, uh, in local villages um, uh, where... There is reportedly, uh, and we're understanding more and more, a discontent discontent among the local population uh, about the large number of people arriving and transiting through uh, their villages. We have known for a while that violence is one of the main reasons that drives people from countries like Honduras, Guatemala and El Salvador to leave their homes. But when Lynn started asking the migrants more questions, she learned that other factors play an important role as well, something that surprised her. When we were there, most people that that um, we spoke to came from Honduras and Guatemala. And many were mentioning something that I, at that point, didn't know what it was. They were saying that they, they had left their homes because of La Roya. And La Roya, I later found out, 
is leaf rust. Leaf rust is a, a disease or a fungus that kills crops. And so what is happening a lot in Honduras and in Guatemala is that leaf rust is killing the uh, or destroying coffee uh, plantations and the crops. And it is increasingly spreading in warming climates. In the last decade, northern Central America has seen an increasing um, temperature level and uh, there have been prolonged droughts. So with that, um, the, the fungus or the disease has been spreading and, uh, and the spread of crops or the spread of the disease leading to destroyed crops is affecting food security, which eventually is affecting uh, or leading to malnutrition and displacement. So many were saying that they could no longer work their lands and uh, how they had initially tried to uh, or moved to, um, to some urban areas, but that they, for different reasons and different types of insecurities, had then crossed into Mexico. So I think that this... They themselves were not talking about climate change or environmental change, for instance, but they were speaking about a very specific uh, thing happening to, in, to their livelihoods that can be related to, uh, to the fact that, that the temperatures are rising. Asking the right questions can help us better understand the complex reasons for why people flee their homes, as well as other humanitarian issues. At the same time, some of our colleagues are exploring new ways to better prepare for future crises and to facilitate more timely and effective responses. In the emergency unit in Hong Kong where Ken Zui works, for example, our colleagues are investing in new technologies and are encouraging other actors in the region to do more. We also developed an online tool called REACH, um, an operation of uh, Reaction Assessment Collaboration Hub to improve our response in emergencies. And then externally, we are encouraging the different actors, including governments, UN agencies, INGOs and NGOs, etc., to not only focusing on building climate resilient community and mitigations, but also invest in disaster response capacity to the immediate need after um, a major disasters. Water and sanitation expert Leo Tremblay is about to launch a new project called MACAS, which stands for Meteorological and Climate Anticipation System. It will help keep track of weather hazards where the world's most vulnerable people live. The project's goal is to get a better understanding of weather and climate-related information so that MSF can respond in a more timely and efficient manner. So we're focusing primarily on emergency response linked to extreme weather events. Um, and what we want to bring is is um, more timely operations. So we want to be in the field, on the ground sooner. And we also want to be more prepared. So have a better idea of what are the, the needs of the populations uh, on, the, on the ground. Uh, but also us like have an adequation, have the, the resources to fulfill these needs. As climate strikers across the globe are calling for attention to the climate crisis, they are also calling for political responsibility to stem climate change, especially for those most responsible for contributing polluting carbon emissions. As for MSF's own environmental footprint, many of our colleagues realise that while we provide emergency medical relief, we must do it in a more sustainable manner. To help us make data-driven decisions to mitigate our carbon footprint on a wider scale, 
my colleague Carol Devine helped launch an environmental impact toolkit. MSF has a lot of great um, ad hoc activities, um, solar air conditioning um, pilots. We've been using solar for decades. Uh, we've converted in many places to LED light bulbs. But what we wanted a sense of our big footprint so that we can get going on mitigation. So what we did was uh, a, a quick look at the largely carbon footprint of five projects, five offices, Canada, Switzerland, Kenya, Mexico, and Honduras. Now, those countries aren't representative of all of MSF, but it's a good mix of, of countries and regions and regulations. And what we suspected was air travel was going to be huge, uh, but what we found was that our air freight is really high. And it doesn't mean we're going to stop using air freight or stop uh, traveling by planes, but we certainly need to avoid when we can, to mitigate, to change our practices, and, uh, you know, it's our responsibility uh, with medical ethics to do no harm. While the challenges posed by the climate emergency are enormous, it's also an opportunity for us at MSF to adapt and make changes. Thank you for listening to this episode of Everyday Emergency. For more true stories from the front line of medical emergencies, Subscribe via your podcast provider or visit msf.org.uk slash podcast.